Hi, Katie. Welcome to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about people from history you may not have heard of. How are you today? Yeah, not too shabby. Not too shabby not at too all. shabby. Excellente. My, uh, my contract ends on Friday and then I'm free. Woo-hoo. Free as a bird to do nothing in COVID land. Yeah, that's the thing. Free to like not do anything <laughs> and you'll be like you'll be like oh some time off but then you'll be bored after like a week because yeah. that's what i've had i've had some time off and i am bored yesterday i went to try and give blood okay which is something i've been meaning to do for ages it's a good thing to do if you can't give blood do give blood so i went there filled in the form all good got my iron levels taken all good and then um, was like went to the chair, and they couldn't find a vein, and they were like, oh. "Your veins are abnormally small." Is that like dangerous? No, it just means no. It, it's just like some people have small veins. Apparently, it's like a family thing. My mum said like my gran or something had them, okay. and my cousin said she had them. So like, um, and I've also had problems before. You know, sometimes you have blood tests for things. Uh-huh. When I had a blood test before, like it would take like five stabs to, to get it, Ooh. get a vein. It's poking around. But they were like, we've had two people try and find your vein and we can't find it. So that was annoying. Um, but I tried. So. Oh man, I don't think I could do that. Like, uh, yeah, I always, I always pass out if I just have like um, a blood test. I mean, like it wasn't really my fault. I remember like one of the times I like passed out. They kind of like took two syringes of blood or something and then they did this weird thing where they like left the needle on my arm and then unscrewed the like syringy bit and then like as my heart was beating it was just spraying blood across the room and that made me feel queasy yeah. then but, i then but, I passed because out. they usually do unscrew the unscrew the thing but they usually take the needle out anyway that's not um let's <laughs> not, not dwell, dwell on a blood spray do you want to Tell me about someone. Yes, let's 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 do this. That I may or may not have heard of. <laughs> I I think it, I'm ninety nine point nine percent sure that you have not heard of this person. Excellent. That's how I like it. Because this is kind of like a bit. This is uh, this one kind of like goes into the realms of social history. I think. So we're not talking about like a like a kind of like a, a famous individual from history. It's just kind of like a guy who's who served in the Second World War and uh, I kind just of a guy. I kind of came across him because, like, um, what was I looking up? I can't remember, but... I mean, Twitter is an ugly place, and, like, people were kind of, like, getting into, like, a little spat about World War Two, And someone, like, shared this, like, article about, like... I don't think they were actually veterans. I'm trying to make out that they were veterans that had this opinion, but I think they were just, like, baby boomers who were maybe, like, born during World War Two. Talking about how they like wanted their country back, that kind of crap, you know, the sort of stuff that that <laughs> is frequently yeah. in the like Daily Mail. So like, kind of like, and and it led me to this book by this guy. I don't know like who he is. He's not like a proper historian or anything. And he he'd like written a book like based on like letters that he'd got from I think just boomers. And there's some like disgusting stuff that he kind of like quoted in there. Um. So I kind of like wanted to look around for like the other side of the like uh, of that argument. I came across this guy. This guy called like uh, well, first I came across his wife uh, who is called um, da, 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 find his wife's name Lillian. There you go. So first I came across like Lillian, and then from her, who's kind of it's quite a bit about her on the internet. And then from her, I found 
her husband, Ramsey Bader. So he was kind of like a, a black British guy who served in the British Army um, as a tank driver. But I'm kind of getting ahead myself now. So I'm going to tell you, like, his, like, experience. And it's really cool. I mean, like, I mean, I you know me. I, I'm a tank geek. I love tanks. So, like, uh, he's a tank <laughs> driver. And so I, I found us, like, his, uh, his experience really interesting. And basically there's, like, a, there's an interview with him on the... Um, on the uh, Imperial War Museum website, there's like five tapes, twenty five minutes each. So it's a quite quite long, quite in depth. It's just uh, I just found it really interesting. I I, I thought he sa- he sounded like a really nice guy. So I thought I would do a podcast episode on him, and then we'll stick like a link to the to the interview itself and somewhere on social media or something so people can listen to it. Yeah, I recommend we can definitely that do that. That people do because uh, yeah, he, he, it's it's very interesting. I think. So, okay. start from the beginning. So, Ramsey Bader was born in Chiswick, West London, in 1919. Um, so, so, the year after the First World War. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But from age uh, six months, he lived in Stanfordly Hope in Essex. And, like, it's really cool because, like, he's got the really old school, like, Essex accent that I, like, I always go on about. That just doesn't seem to, like, exist anymore. But uh, yeah, it's really cool like, hearing that. So uh, yeah, it's really cool. I obviously from Essex, so I, I like hearing that little like that thing. He doesn't have the the Essex Joey <laughs> no. Essex accent. No, 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 no. I wish he did though. That would be cool. It's kind of like slightly farmerish, and it's like oh yeah, it's lovely. I kind of like new people when I was growing up. That had that. that it was only like the older people. But um, yeah, so his biological father was from Freetown in Sierra Leone, uh, and he was a serving soldier in World War One. For okay. uh, in the actual British Army, not like for the colonial force, like in the in the main British Army. Um, so he married uh, Ramsey's mother, who was a uh, white British. Um, but he would not meet his family until long after the war. Um, he would also later discover that he had a brother who fought in Burma. Um, but basically, he was like put up for adoption. His brother wasn't. I'm not sure why his brother stayed with the family and he was put up for adoption. Sometimes but, um, that happens because there's like almost like too many children if you're the younger one. Weirdly, this happened to my granddad. He hmm. wasn't adopted, but his siblings both were. Okay, then. So and I don't know if there's any like reason... His old, older siblings were part of adoption. Yeah, his two older siblings. I, there was some sort of joke. Um, my dad might be able to remind me of the joke. Something like he was too ugly to get adopted. <laughs> too ugly a baby. Like, um, But I don't think that's true. There must have been some sort of reason I, I guess uh, why he was kept. But I guess if you have three, then maybe that's just yeah. you know, too many for some people to handle. So. Well, I suppose like, as uh, time went by, maybe like their financial situation became more stable. Uh, Maybe, yeah, I don't know. So, um, yeah, something like that. Something Um, like that. So, um... So, was he adopted into another black family? Was it a white family? No, so his adopted father was a a Swiss guy, basically, a a white Swiss Swiss guy, um, who came over to England um, when he was young. Uh, Apparently, he wasn't wealthy when he arrived, but that would change, um... So basically, his foster father was a pacifist. Um, I think he was a Quaker, actually. So um, nice. Basically, he wanted to avoid conscription into the uh, into the Swiss force at home um, because uh, obviously everyone has to serve in the in the Swiss army. 
Um, so when he came over, he, he married an English lady. Um, he worked for a bank for a short while, then started a textile business in Stratford. Um, and then moved to a very old, apparently very old, very nice house called Williston Hall uh, in, I think that was in um, Stanford, Lehope. So, duh, duh, duh. Um, Oh yeah, so I also so the business became quite uh, well known. Like he didn't say the name of the company, but apparently it's quite like a a renowned. Well, in the the interview was done in the eighties, so in the eighties it was quite like a internationally renowned business, um, and it was also apparently a cooperative, which I'm not surprised coming from, uh, from yeah um, a Quaker. Quakers do like a cooperative, and I like a cooperative. <laughs> yeah. It's all cool. Um, <laughs> Apparently he had a number of foster brothers and sisters who were adopted over the years. And then the couple had um, children, two children of their own as well. Um, he said it wasn't a strict upbringing. He was pretty happy. Um, kind of like broke, brought up in like typical Quaker fashion. However, he ended up as a Methodist, weirdly. Uh, oh, okay. I'm sure, sure how that Like happens, later but. on in life. Uh, no, apparently he was raised that way. Um, maybe his mother was... I, Maybe first, like, a Methodist and then changed. Okay. Right, um, yeah. So he left school at 16. He said he had a fairly good education up to that time. I mean, like, leaving at 16 was pretty good in the 30s, 40s, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't, like, mandatory you even stay that long. Yeah. So. Probably he left with lots of practical skills, like in uh, in woodwork and not that in and whatnot. Uh, however, unfortunately, he found it very hard to find work. Uh, he suspects because uh, because of the color of his skin, um, which mm. it, it, it's not surprising for that time. Um, uh, there was not that many people, uh, black people, in Essex uh, at that time, and unfortunately, that still hasn't really changed in twenty twenty one. Yeah, having has lived it not? there, no, not really. It's uh, yeah, it, it's not Did the most diverse that... place. Did you find that? Um, in your school, you were in one of the more ethnic minorities, being like. I think there was in, in our school probably about in primary school to like two of us. I think we were not white. Yeah. Wow, and, that's that's crazy. And in my secondary school, I mean, like you could probably count count them on like on like two hands, maybe. Yeah, because obviously it's the complete opposite for me. Yeah, growing up in North London, um, we're incredibly diverse, so it's kind of almost like hard for me to imagine being in school and it not being like really diverse. But I know yeah. it's the same for a lot of people. My boyfriend went to school in um, West Sussex, and there was only one um, black guy because he went to a boys' school mm. um, in his school. Only one. Yeah, I mean, like so that, to me, that's like absolutely baffling. But I guess you know that that's still the case in some places. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. I mean, um, yeah, that's part of the reason why I wouldn't really want to move back to Essex. Like, I like diversity, and it's uh yeah, it's a bit, I mean, like it's a bit, it's quite difficult when it when it's not there and you are considered different. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Sorry for that tangent. <laughs> um. So he went to work for his father's factory for a few years. So uh, thankfully he had that kind of uh, that option. So he worked for his father's family, uh, for his father's factory for a few years before joining up to the army. 
Um, he kind of gives his recollections of like the regime in Germany, like uh, what he thought of the regime in Germany prior to joining up. He says he had quite a good idea of what was happening in Germany at Germany at the time from the newspapers. Um, he says he was quite conscious of his colour in regards to it. Um, he said he saw the treatment Hitler um, gave to Jesse Owens um, during the uh, yes. nineteen thirty six six year Olympics. Yeah. Um, he said basically he 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 felt he wanted to fight against that sort of thing. Um, at the time, he said he. Um, he realised that people of colour would have received the same treatment that the Jews were receiving in in Germany, suggesting he kind of like knew about kind of knew about what's happening. I mean, like it's like the gas chambers and stuff weren't revealed until later on, but um it would seem that like there was at least some kind of reporting of like what was happening in Germany. I mean there was there was legislative persecution yeah. happening from thirty four mm. onwards. So in terms of things like education, in terms of things like um, professions, being a lawyer, being a doctor, being yeah. anything, you know, and also then, of course, marriage and relationships were restricted as well. And that's how it all began. So that's not like it was secret because yeah. it was it was law. So, yeah. Exactly. I mean, like, it was really clear to him, like, where, where things were going, I think. Um, so, yeah, so he said that he realised that he had to fight against a regime that he saw... Was that was clearly evil, um, and he felt more inclined to do so as a person of color. Uh, in many, in many ways, seeing it basically as like a fight for survival. So, if Germany were to win the war, then um, he basically thought that like people, like he, he and and people like him, just people, anyone who just wasn't white would would basically cease to exist. Is I think the word that he, uh, the term that he used. Um, wow. I think this is like really interesting considering some like the uh, the modern takes. Um, I mean, like there seems to be like a bit of a like a reappraisal of like the Second World War going on, especially like on the left, like not so much trying like seeing it as kind of like a fight against like Nazi Germany and kind of like taking in considerations of things like colonialism, which I, I suppose is fair. But I mean, like I don't think like we can completely disregard the fact that like. That war was, I I'm I'm not to let go of the idea that that was like one like basically the only good war because the regime that was destroyed was, base blatantly evil, and, yeah, and it was fought for like a, a yeah, good the, cause. The, the, there was a massive difference between First World War and Second World War. Yeah, and, and there's um, definitely there's a de- there's there are difference. so many elements obviously to it, mm. but like at its core. Yeah. was an evil regime yeah. but obviously you can't put it all down to that especially as like my history is based mm-hmm. on like the nazi party i am very like you know I, i'm not like a world history like you yeah so i'm sure you have other like things that you know would would kind of feed in well, it's interesting because I mean, like, obviously, I focus on British well, Western colonialism in Asia and how, like, uh, like, so I, I look at kind of like the decolonization process, like the fight, fight, fight back against like uh, Western colonialism, like after World War Two. However, I, I don't really take that much of an extreme view. I mean, like, there's definitely, and this is what this is what Ramsey seems to, to say as well that there are clear differences between British colonialism and the sort of racism. Um, uh, and as he says, the face racism and prejudice that he faced in Germ uh, in Britain 
compared to like the sort of racism, racism being like fermented in Germany, like the regime in Germany and British colonialism are like miles apart. Like it was far, far worse in Germany. Far worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean, and also I mean, like as a, just a side note, like I, I, I think of World War Two as like like the second world wars as opposed to like the second world war i think the war that was fought in asia and the war in that was fought in europe were completely different they were essentially yeah. just separate conflicts even though they were being fought well, they're, they're two conflicts and then there's the holocaust which is a whole separate yeah. kind of thing so i think that yeah there's it was just like the it was a world war but it was like a world transformation yeah totally um, but yeah, yeah, anyway, that's that's a whole other <laughs> like essay. Um, so he says he wasn't particularly political at the time, but on a human, he said on a human and Christian level, he felt he needed to go uh, and fight the war. Basically, hmm. uh, he also said that he was wor- while he was working, so he was working at his father's factory in um, Stratford. So he was kind of like traveling back and forth to like to london on the train like uh through london going back to like essex and stuff so he said he met lots of people from around the world different cultures colors creeds and yeah he, he said that like yeah he felt like he identified these people and seeing like what was going on in germany he thought like all these people would just be wiped out if uh if things to go were to go south um so um so yeah his adoptive parents are obviously pacifists so his his, his dad had fled uh switzerland so he didn't have to join the army so he basically went against his his parents uh beliefs against their wishes to join up um but it was a cause he believed in he says so his father fled from switzerland to britain or from mm-hmm. britain to switzerland no 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 he yeah his dad's sweat from fled from switzerland to britain to, so he wouldn't be called up to the conscripted into the militia army um, in Switzerland, probably would have been better staying in Switzerland. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Turns out. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he does talk a little about bit about his treatment in the army. He said um, he actually says that he 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 received. Uh, what he said it was a friendly attitude from most serving people, and that he didn't feel too much prejudice. Um, unfortunately, after the war. He said that like, like the, the same prejudice he kind of like faced in like everyday life returned. Like he found it hard finding work, even though he served his country because of his color. Um, yeah, I mean he's never bitter about it. Like he doesn't seem bitter about it in the um, in the the interview at all. Um, yeah, he doesn't. He never seems to have this attitude that he's like owed something, even though he went through something like crazy. Like he, he yeah. fought for his country and. He didn't get anything in return, but yeah, yeah I mean, like mad. he just comes across as a very a selfless man. Like he's just a very decent human being. Um, he felt like he was fighting for a good cause, and that that was it. That's all he needed. Um, yeah. To his mind, he basically he says that he he fought a war to make the world a better place, despite the still like um, the myriad problems still facing him in the world. Um, yeah, he also does speak specifically about other people of colour who oh. fought as part of the British Army. So he, he mentions uh, Indian formations fighting Casino uh, in Italy, uh, the entire Italian campaign. He notes that like many people, I mean, especially the back then, maybe in the 80s, didn't know uh, about this. I think there's a kind of like um, an idea that Indian formations only really fought in Asia, but um, there's a lot of Indian for- formations that fought in Africa and in Europe, they just didn't fight in France. Um, they were kind of like com- confined to 
Italy for basically like racist reasons. Um, yeah. But, yeah, but they they fought very hard and they were invaluable on the. Uh, oh yeah. On the Italian front, how it's like. If it wasn't for those units, they never would have broken the deadlock of the on the Monte Cassino line. So, um, so he talked about like the um, his experiences in the army. So yeah, as I said before, he said that he didn't didn't feel like he faced prejudice uh, in the in the forces. He said the only time he came across it um, was from a corporal who had previously served as part of the colonial Indian army. So I mean, like he was basically bringing back the prejudices of the empire, which were kind of like old-fashioned compared to the attitudes of like the army and like the metropole at the time so this corporal basically tried to make his life pretty unpleasant um but he says that he kind of like he knew what was going on and was clever enough to hold his own he said in the end he kind of like took the issue up with their with their commanding officer um going by that ramsey was a was a private um so their commanding officer was an irish officer who is he said was very understanding i mean like i guess because he was irish he probably faced his own kind of um prejudice in like the british uh, in the british officer corps possibly so anyway he took ramsey's point of view and took the matter up with the corporal and it was he said it was never brought up uh, again so so he talks a little bit about training he says that um he chose to go into an armored unit uh like tanks basically so you when you when you join up you're allowed to pick what you want to do what you want to specialize in yeah so you'd first you'd be trained up as an infantryman anyway, and then you'd go into like specialist uh, training. So he chose to be a tank driver. He said there was something to do with it. he thinks that was something to do with his like foster parents' influence. And so like he didn't want to do like any actual killing, but he wanted to kind of like support. So he'd still be in the front line, but he would kind of like be taking kind of a, a less kind of like offensive role. Um, right yeah he said he never driven before like he'd never driven a car so he just learned to drive like on the job um so he kind of like learned the mechanics behind it as well so he became like a, a competent mechanic um and he did also kind of like learn all the different roles in the tank even though he was specializing as a driver so he did end up like firing shells off but like just not at people so they first fired off their guns at like targets in a field and then just fired it out to sea. That just sounds really fun. I'd love to do that. Just fire <laughs> artillery like, shells into the sea. Sounds amazing. Um, his first kind of like taste of action was D-Day. So, I mean, like that's that's quite a baptism of fire. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> so his, uh, his unit assembled at Bournemouth. He said they weren't allowed to leave to keep the operation secret. So they were just kind of like pinned into their like barracks. Then they were going to load up on ships and just kind of left to to be seasick for a while. Um, <clears throat> and they were, because they left in like really rough weather. He said he made a journey on a LTC. So that's kind of like a landing craft that carries up seven tanks. It's not a massive ship. So yeah, it's really going to feel it. Like, all yeah. Kind of like, right, the smaller so he, the ship, <clears throat> the worse the yeah. seasickness. So everything was just kind of like strapped in, uh, just kind of like roped in. So, I mean, like, pretty heavy, heavy casualties on the beach. He said uh, they passed, like, loads of, like, just floating bodies, which sounds horrible. Like, tons of, like, landing craft just being blown to pieces, just on fire. Uh, he was part of, like, a, a self-propelled gun uh, unit. I was trying to work out what he was driving. Like, there's a few kind of, like, things he describes about, like, kind of, like, turrets and, like, um, buttoning up, buttoning up. But from what I can tell, like, his unit 
uh, drive sextons, which were kind of like open-topped um, self-propelled guns that had like the gun just in the hull. Okay. But I, I do suspect there would have been kind of like um, other tanks in the unit as well, so it's possible they might have had like a 105mm gun-armed Sherman. But yeah, as far as I can tell, like the most common vehicle in that unit was the uh, the Sexton. So he says that he's his tank started firing the moment the tank landed on the beach. Um, says they were kind of like under heavy fire from mortars and anti-tank guns and machine guns from the beginning. The tank in front of him apparently was just taken out straight away, like right in front of him. So you saw like a, a tank. I think it basically like took a hit and then sank. Nice. Which sounds horrible. That is grim. So like... But I mean, like, so yeah, just having to drive through that, just like watching like his own, like his buddies and his own unit just being taken out right in front of him and they're carrying on. Um, so uh, after that, as a driver, he kind of like had the responsibility to like avoid all the obstacles on the beach. So he said there was like mines, the various kind of like tank traps, like the little cross things. Yeah. Um, getting up there. Instantly had to engage in pillboxes and buildings that are being like kind of uh, fortified. Uh, um, he said he hadn't expected such a strong uh, resistance. So this was kind of like weirdly uneven. So there's bits that were just like fine, but there would just be like pockets of just like really fierce resistance that they had to like just overcome. They had to just like attack it rather than like going around it. Like a video game. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he says their unit managed to capture their executives on the day. So their, their objective of the day was apparently a village of Bayou, which they managed to like clear by uh, nightfall. Um, so he was kind of like supporting the infantry on this advance. He says he can. Re- he talks about like how he can remember seeing like infantry just like cut down like by machine gun fire and just blown up by mines. He said he felt helpless that he couldn't rescue them. There was just like wounded men, but it was. He said it was his duty to establish that bridgehead so you know to just advance. You keep telling yourself that you've made it, but just like for how long? You kind of like feel a bit guilty for like making it, but then you just think like at any moment that that could be me. Hmm. Um, he kind of like rated Germans as kind of like well trained and stubborn. He kind of like they refused to give up ground. He remembers the SS obviously as being the worst and cruelest, even when taken prisoner. He said they would put their hands up, but they would have a grenade concealed to like blow up once uh, the uh, infantry um, approached, um, which he apparently witnessed personally. And he said that they were very arrogant even when captured. Um, he said they'd also put booby traps on their dead, uh, on dead and wounded British soldiers. So, like, they'd kill stretcher bearers when they came over, which is just horrible. Mm. Um, it's kind of interesting that the SS said that. Like, um, <clears throat> like, the Japanese always have, like, a bad reputation for, like, doing that sort of stuff, but the Germans seem to have done the same stuff. Same sort of stuff. Um, uh, he said, like, a lot of... Uh, the uh, the troops that he was supporting were all kind of like veterans from the desert, so they're all kind of like hardened fighters. They're all like they'd all had like many years of like fighting under their belts, but they were all kind of like very used to fighting in desert conditions rather than kind of like heavily wet, wet Europe. Fields. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, wet like, which Europe, completely different. So like weirdly, even though they're veterans, like. They like they weren't actually as effective as some of like the, the so new troops. veterans from like which wars uh, from World War Two, but they've been fighting like 
uh, right. in the main, like in the desert. Okay, like, yeah. And then they'd move from the desert to like, all the rest have been like training specifically for like this like war in Europe, and they'd come over and like all their like experiences in the desert, which weirdly handicapped them. He said like they just weren't really used to like that sort of fighting. Uh, da da da. Well, it's kind of the similar thing that happened with the Germans and Russia. Yeah. Like, they went into a climate that they weren't prepared for. Yeah. And, like, climate completely. makes all the difference. Yeah, especially when, they, when the winter hit, they were just completely unprepared. And then they were yeah, just they were like, this... this is cold. <laughs> like, way colder than we were prepared for. There's no winter clothing. And then they were suddenly faced with all these Russians who had, like, amazing, like, padded... <laughs> They were like, we are very warm. (laughs) (laughs) When he was asked about, like, um, what he thought of the French, uh, the population, uh, he said they weren't too friendly at first. Basically, he says he thinks that they were never sure if the Allies were going to be pushed back into the sea, like, again, if there was going to be another Dunkirk. So they kind of didn't have too much faith in in the (laughs) Allies at first. But he said once they started to get further in, they became, like, much, much more friendly and much more happy to, like, see them. He did say the French, uh, the three French uh, resistance were very helpful from the beginning in harassing the enemy. Um, though he later saw how like collaborate collaborators have been treated, so you could so it came across a lot of women who had their, their heads shaved. But he said like that paled in comparison to like what the Germans and so on. He said he came across like entire villages that have been like raised and populations as executed by the SS. Mm. Um, he talks about like Allied air support being very good because he said there was good communication. If there was any stiff resistance, like the RAF would just be like in there to like take it out. Um, he talks about like uh, a lot of the snipers, like the sniper situations that they found themselves in. They're just like cool uh, a fighter bomber like platoon, and they just cut like um, wing, and they just come in and just like bomb the church tower, which seems like overkill for just one sniper, but. I mean, like, if you got it, you may as well use it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, I say. <laughs> well, he really laments is like the just like destruction of nature. He says like all the remains of these beautiful forests were just like these burnt stumps. Um, just kind of like, laments how how horrible it is that like so much like natural beauty was destroyed. Um, he kind of like, talks about the Luftwaffe a little bit. He says that like by that time. <clears throat> The uh, Luftwaffe had kind of like been just dis- like well not destroyed but like they've been pulled back to Germany so it wasn't really that much. However, he did still encounter a few stickers and he can remember like the dive. So like stickers were basically just like out this like piercing scream as they came down. They had these horrible sirens on there, mm. like fixed to the bottom. So you can currently remember being like bombed and strafed. Like on one um, occasion, he remembers like. One just like basically came out of like the clouds out of like nowhere and dropped a bomb and it landed like right at the rear of his tank. Like they managed to just kind of like jump out of the way. Like I think like a he just jumped under the tank. So like because of the angle, he said because of the angle like the plane was coming in, like the the bomb like the explosion kind of angled away from his tank. So it got like the tank behind him, but like it was literally like just behind his tank. Like it was it was such like a, a a lucky escape, crazy, and it apparently wasn't even action. He says at the time, like the crew were just basically sorting out their rations. Like someone was like refueling, but yeah, he said there's not much you can do against a plane. Like um, they had like a Bren gun that they could use to kind of like to fire at it, but it's like 
you have to be very lucky to like hit a plane with a brain. Yeah, it's a plane. Like, <laughs> yeah. like um, if a plane was coming towards my house, yeah, and like coming in <laughs> from my window, well, the only thing you can do is run. Yeah, there's yeah, there's no getting away from that. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, he like uh, describes another kind of like near miss. So after Khan, he had to fight uh, at a place called Tilly Tilly Lassern. Um, what would have been named by the military folks as a uh, Hill One Hundred Three? Uh, so basically, the British had kind of like taken the hills. So they were taking the high ground, and the Germans basically just loads, loads of massive like counter attack. So it kind of got so desperate that him and his like artillery tank had to again di- um, engage the enemy with, like direct fire, like over open sights, rather than kind of like as an artillery gun as he normally would have. So this is not what the section was designed for. So uh, in the end, they had to kind of like withdraw from like the top of the hill to the bottom of the hill, which meant that so. They basically so then the Germans kind of like didn't know they were there, so they kind of like emerge over the top of the hill and they just like attack them from there. It sounded kind of crazy though, like uh, just another like very like near near miss. Um, <clears throat> so a lot of people were kind of like going on about how like the war would be over by Christmas after the invasion of Normandy, but he was like, yeah, it's definitely not gonna. After like kind of, like seeing everything he seems he'd seen, he was just like, this that's definitely not gonna be the case. It's gonna be a while longer. Which he was correct in uh, in predicting. His unit also actually took part in market garden, apparently. Um, so I had to advise. So, so go if we want to go back to listen to. Um, yeah, I was going to say about <laughs> boy, uh, old um, boy Browning. Boy Browning, Frederick Browning. So uh, he's yeah, he was part of thirty course. So they've got like racing up Hell's Highway, trying to get to the powers at um, Arnhem. Um, so he said they were driving. They still much like, although I kind of like uh, a lot of the history says that like um, the tanks were held up. He says that they were driven that like, they were driving at such high speed and managed to keep such like fast bars going that they had to keep fixing the rubber uh, on their road wheels. Like their road wheels got break- breaking because they were like going so fast. Still, they couldn't get to the powers in time despite the mad dash. Um, but he said that, like the advance was so quick that they could have been cut off at any time. Like. Uh, they left kind of like the road behind them open. So I don't know what that means for like Boyle Browning and his plan. Like, I don't know like how how that would change anyone's perception of it. But um, it seems like Thaycor did uh, and made, made a good attempt at it anyway, from what he said. Cool. Uh, main problem being, in his opinion, the Americans didn't capture the bridges that they were meant yeah. to capture. <laughs> but of course, he's going to say that. He's a British soldier. He's going to blame on the Americans. They blame us, we blame them, and the cycle <laughs> continues. Uh, after that, he talks about uh, crossing the Rhine. He describes this as like another little mini D-Day, like there was lots of amphibious tanks. Um, his unit kind of like stayed on like the, the the far far side of the bank, providing artillery support for the uh, for the uh, infantry and tanks that were crossing the water. Um, and later provided uh, covering fire for the engineers as they built the uh, pontoon bridges. Um, around this time, he recalls taking a 16 or 17-year-old soldier prisoner and said they were very arrogant, despite being very poorly trained. 
He said they've been totally indoctrinated, so they're like Hitler youth kind of like kids. I think he saw kind of like an entirely broken generation like uh, coming out of Germany there. Um, but, but, but. So after this, the crossing of the Rhine, the, the war wrapped up pretty quickly after that. So he remembers like uh, his victory parade in Hanover in front of General Dempsey, who had been con- uh, commanding his uh, his army. Um, he later took up duties as part of the occupying force around Kiel. Uh, before being demobilized in 1946. Um, so during the occupation, he said the he was told, strictly told not to fraternize with the German population. Um, <laughs> he said that was kind of like he did. Um, <clears throat> he said basically the British soldiers basically didn't want to fraternize with the, the Germans. <laughs> well, I, I just love the word fraternize. <laughs> he said they kind of like they come across... He hadn't liberated any of the concentration camps, um, but they did come across like prisoner of war camps, so they'd liberated British soldiers. He said they were in an appalling state. Uh, they were very pleased to like see the liberators, and they'd been starved essentially. They were, like they were very thin, which is another thing that's not really talked about. Like there's a lot of talk about like how badly British soldiers were treated in German, uh, in Japanese prisoner of war camps. But yeah, he says the. Uh, his experience of liberating British prisoners in Germany was, yeah, pretty appalling. There is some interesting source material there, though. There's, um, uh, we, the Germany, I, do you know what? I can't remember if it's West or East Germany. I have a feeling it was West Germany, but I'm not, I can't remember. Gave us some compensation for prisoners of war from oh, really? Britain who had been in concentration like prisoner of war camps yeah um and you had to fit in an application form and describe your experience and where you'd been and those application forms are in the national archives oh okay then and some of them you can't see because they're you know protected yeah um but some of them you can and on my blog i've got like some information from one of them um Mm. so yeah there's some source material there but yeah you're right it's um, there were Britons in prisoner of war camps that weren't yeah. concentration camps. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> there was also like lots of cases of uh, Germans march, especially like in East Germany when the Russians were advancing, like marching their prisoners of war westwards. In like, I mean, that's just like horrendous conditions and just yeah. I mean, that people that's dying on the road. That's well known. Road. That's um, yeah. you know, in Auschwitz they call it the death march, yeah. and a lot of people that would have survived had they stayed at Auschwitz, yeah, died on the death march. So Primo Levi survived oh, yeah. because he stayed in the camp, whereas his friend died on the death march. So that is like quite well documented. But you're right; it's not just Auschwitz. Yeah, prisoner of war camps as well. I think I read an account of like an Italian uh, um, experience from those former former allies to Germany. Um, yeah. So he says like the British troops uh, didn't engage in looting, or not to the same extent that the Germans had previously. So I'm not sure if this is entirely trustworthy. Again, like you might just be like defending uh, his own uh, his own forces, but. Um, but he does talk by comparison. He says he talks about how in France he came across an abandoned German tiger and he found it laden up with like loot, or as he calls it, the prizes of war. Um, when you say tiger, ex- you don't mean a tiger. You mean a tiger tank, right? Yeah, a German tiger tank. Yeah. <laughs> Not like a literal, <laughs> just to clear that up for everyone. 
but I was just like like that idea, just like going into a tiger tank and just finding like I don't know, like art, rare art, just in inside a tank. But like we know what um, your priorities really were. <laughs> um, but he doesn't give any examples of what he saw on his own side by comparison. So women, he said, he didn't see any cases of uh, British soldiers, uh, as he puts it, interfering with uh, with German women. He says that the British forces were well policed. Um, I'm not sure about this. Um, there's a book about it of uh, of cases of like sexual assault by like the Western Allies by um, by uh, a German academic, a female German ac- academic. Can't remember what the the book's called at the moment, but I will put that link in the uh, description or something uh, later. Um, da, da, da. Um, oh yeah, it's part of his kind of like um, his occupation duties. He's kind of like uh, obviously just kind of like being being posted in Germany. He kind of uh, got to see like um, the the German cities, and he kind of like describes like the apocalyptic like levels of destruction mm. he saw. Like um, yeah, just kind of like complete like moonscapes. Um, but then he kind of like talks about how like impressive like he's seen like the the places that he he he'd kind of like uh he'd uh where he'd kind of like um done his like occupation journey like at the two seasons like seen how they'd been like rebuilt and he thought it was like unbelievable how like how places like after such kind of like destruction could be like rebuilt um yeah, talking about how they've become like once again just become like bustling cities, like connected to the rest of the country by like modern motorways. Um, he thinks it says something about like human tenacity and perhaps like uh, gives them some sort of faith in uh, in humanity that they can like build back again after like causing so much destruction. So, um, ba-bam. Oh, man, still quite a bit more. <clears throat> So yeah, some of the thoughts he had like after the war, he said, as he said, I said before, he, like he remembers, he, he says he feels proud of having served. Um, however, he thought thinks that unless nations get together and their people can get can work together for the good of humanity, the same thing will just happen over and over again. I mean, like <clears throat> I think that's what we're seeing we're seeing again now, isn't it? Like. Uh, we have attempted to try and work together, but then uh, Brexit has come along and various other things. But I mean, like, <laughs> I'm not going to get too political. So yeah, he says for this for the sake of humanity, we have to come together, whatever class, whatever color, whatever creed. That's the only way to uh, to save us all. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about his life after the war, or mm, post or his private, a bit of his private life. Um, so during the war, uh, Ramsey met a woman called Lillian uh, in 1941. They, they met. So she oh. joined up to the uh, Women's Auxiliary Air Force in 1941 and become an instrument repair person, which is a new job that had opened up to women. So she was a smart, technically minded cookie. Um, <laughs> so at some point, um, June 1941, she met our young hero, Ramsey Bader. Uh, Lydian says she immediately felt attracted to Ramsey, even in the ugly khaki battle dress. He looked like an officer, that's what she said, a dashing, dashing officer. Um, so Lillian and Ramsey exchanged letters and photographs for a couple of years before being married in Hull on the 11th of March 1943. 
Together they had two children. Uh, after the war, Lillian would go on to university and become a teacher. And nice. she would later publish her memoirs of her time in the RAF, uh, which is called Together, Lillian Bader, Wartime Memories of a, a WAAF. Um, nice. 1939 to 1944. She died in March 2015. Um, wow. But she would say something very interesting about Ramsey uh, years later. Recalling how she worried about him on D-Day, she said, I don't, I didn't know if Ramsey was alive or dead. I remember kneeling in the chapel and praying like the blazes that Ramsey would be saved. It was a terrible time because you knew some people would be killed and Ramsey couldn't swim. He hated water. That's what worried him more than anything, but he came through. What a hero he was. I mean, like, he never even mentioned that in his, like, uh, his interview that he was scared of water. But um, it's kind of crazy. Being in a yeah. tank that could just sink to the bottom of, like, the water. Yeah, that's like, pretty heavy. <laughs> and just, uh, yeah, being totally scared of water. Conquered his spirit of water. I never mentioned it. Um, so, annoyingly, I can't find any inf- information on what he did after the war. Um, but I do know that he died in 1992. So, yeah. That's uh, that's Ramsey Bader. Wow, absolute hero. Such but, I mean, an like, interesting, like a like mini mini war story, which I love. Yeah, it's just nice. To, I, I I like reading kind of like uh, people's like takes on like little things about like the war. I mean, like you, so many like books out there where you get like a big like overview by like written by a history like a historian. But it's nice to like just like yeah get. There's like a little book, it's so small, it's you know I'm holding my fingers up, but obviously you can't see it. It's you know, like <laughs> seventy pages or something. Yeah. And it's it's called like Eleven Days in Dachau. I think it's eleven. It might mm. be seventeen. <laughs> it's one of those small numbers. Um yeah. and if you put like days of Dachau, days in Dachau in and he just describes his like really short time in Dachau because yeah. he managed to like escape and stuff even though he had like a broken leg and all this stuff mm. but it's just so short and it just gives you such a, an insight into this person's mind yeah and it's like you gotta remember that all of those people that were in the war are all individuals all mm. with something on their minds yeah exactly so all um, with the life did I go back to and I have to lead yeah. person like anyone else um so what's um the rest of your week looking like i am going finishing to a job finish my job yeah and probably play lots of red dead redemption too because there's been nice. some updates to the multiplayer thing i should do a cowboy at some point i love the wild west uh, so Wild West is one of my least favorite um, types of film in history. It's very interesting. Yeah. But when it comes to film, I really don't like westerns at all. Really? I don't know I'm what so... it is. I just really hate westerns. Um, there's something about it that just like, doesn't work for me. Though I really, really like Buster Scruggs. Yeah. But there's something just really like stylish about Buster Scruggs. So like. I used to be like that, but I've, st- I've started to really love them. I don't know why. I think it was since like the remake of. Um... True Grit. There you go. The remake of True Grit. Oh, is I didn't like True Grit. <laughs> didn't you? Oh god, I love that film. So good. So um, good. But there Fill you go. your hands, you son of a bitch. <laughs> um, what's for dinner? Uh, I am going to make pork and aubergine, Chinese style thing. Cool. Delish. How are you? Um, we're having like rice with 
stuff in the freezer because we're having a Sainsbury's delivery at eight o'clock. So um, we are making stuff space in our freezer, and in our freezer we've got like um, frozen like like um, what are they called? Spring rolls and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've got some fake chicken, and Matt's got some real chicken, and and then just rice like with it because rice goes with everything. Oh yes, it does. Um, and then we've got yeah this very exciting Sainsbury's delivery, which we did like two weeks ago, and I can't remember what is in it. <laughs> so I guess that'll be a nice surprise. Um, yeah. So everyone, if you could please uh, subscribe wherever you're listening to this, that would be really really helpful. You'll be able to get your episodes at um Monday morning, ready you'll for have, your listening. You have have you ever heard of Fix? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, everyone, t- for your feedback on the Elrond Hubbard episodes. It was a long haul. Um, I won't be doing another two-part for a while, I think, because <laughs> it was an absolute schlock. But thank you for listening. And if you liked it, or if you liked this episode, please rate us. Five stars would be great. Leave us a review if you want to. Um, but if you don't want to, no pressure. <laughs> And follow us on the social medias, uh, on Twitter and Instagram at Have You Ever Pod. And see you next time. Bye. Bye.